0: Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, what's the jackpot look like for the government's cyber structure? Each of the
1: players that have major responsibilities are coordinating in a fashion that when something goes wrong, everyone knows exactly what to do. And that's, as you know, in the federal government, sometimes a challenge.
0: A look at the email landscape in the Army's CIO shop.
2: You can bring in your own PC, your Mac you know, your iPhone, your Android, whatever you want to be able to access securely your content and your email in the cloud.
0: And moving the Defense Department's cyber program from have to, to want to.
2: I really do
3: think that as this matures, industry is going to look at CMMC as not something the government is telling them they have to do, but it's a certification that they're gonna want for their own business interest
0: it's tuesday november sixteenth, 2021 welcome to the daily scoop podcast every afternoon you'll learn what's going on today in government i'm the host of the daily scoop podcast francis rose Here's what's happening now. The Commerce Department's taking responses on a new enterprise IT contract that could be worth up to a billion and a half dollars. The request for proposal says the contract covers chief information officer support, digital document and records management, managed service outsourcing and consulting, IT operations and maintenance, IT services management, and cybersecurity. The contract has a one-year base with nine option years. The deadline for responses is January 17th. Eight Defense Department organizations have clean opinions in the fourth annual defense audit results the Pentagon released Monday. Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller Mike McCord says the results show support for one of Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's priorities, taking care of people. The organizations with clean opinions include the Defense Finance and Accounting Service Working Capital Fund, the Defense Contract Audit Agency, the DISA Working Capital Fund, and the DOD Office of Inspector General. The Defense Innovation Unit has new ethical guidelines for companies that provide artificial intelligence technology. Jackson Barnett's writing about it for FedScoop. Jackson, welcome. Is this just for companies that do business with DIU, or is this ethical? are these ethical guidelines for companies that provide AI technology to the Pentagon more broadly?
4: This is just a DIU document, and the Defense Innovation Unit is a very special unit that has been described as DOD's Silicon Valley outpost, and they primarily work with emerging technology companies that provide prototypes that possibly could be transitioned to broader military use.
0: Is there some motivating event or issue that happened, or is this just something that DIU says is along the lines of the evolution of the technology solutions that they're trying to provide?
4: They've been working on this for a long time. Uh, since March 2020, they said they've been working to implement guidelines that uh, initially were foundational principles. These Have five broad principles that the DoD broadly has adopted, but how those five principles get implemented has been uh, somewhat of an unsolved problem. And this is DIU's version of how they intend to implement them.
0: I can't help but recall the challenge that the department had with Project Maven Uh, a number of years ago. Google decided to pull out of Project Maven. Other providers are providing that AI uh, technology to the department for that program, but is this an attempt to try to ameliorate those kinds of concerns not just for google but for vendors in general or is this just for the department's internal process do we know
4: well the the kind of what the dod would call the myth of the rift between silicon valley and dod uh, data shows that 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 rift is is much smaller than uh, is often perceived there are many companies including google that do continue to work with the Defense Department. So I think the concerns within Silicon Valley might be smaller than the perception, but this certainly doesn't hurt in the perception that DOD could use AI for unethical purposes. And secondly, the principles that were signed um, kind of into policy by the former Secretary of Defense uh, are very clear that DOD is committed to ensuring the AI that they use for everything from HR systems, all the way into the systems they use for lethal application of force uh, is, as they say, ethical.
0: Thanks very much, Jackson. You can find more details about those AI guidelines, more on these headlines, and many others at fedscoop.com. The commander of U.S. Cyber Command, General Paul Nakasone, is just one of the leading government cyber experts. that will join me on Thursday for the Palo Alto Network's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference. I hope you'll join me too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies like Zero Trust and Endpoint Detection and Response. You can see the agenda and sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com the White House will clarify who does what among the country's cybersecurity leaders soon. The National Cyber Director, Chris Inglis, says an executive order on the structures is coming in, quote, weeks to months time. Chris Kemski Chief Executive Officer of Kemski Strategic Solutions. He's former Deputy Undersecretary for Management at the Department of Homeland Security. Chris, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and I have talked about this on a number of occasions. What do you expect this to look like as far as who does what? when this guidance comes out. Welcome.
1: Yeah, well, thank you Francis. And as you indicated, we have discussed this and I think it's really a smart move on the part of the White House to, to codify the relationships because uh, you and myself and a lot of others are asking the same question. Uh, you when, we, when you assert yourself and you uh, put together an A team of stellar cyber executives that have uh, you know decades of experience in the federal government. Uh, that brings with it uh, a whole host of benefits, but also you want to make sure that people aren't running into each other. And as uh, the White House has reasserted itself um, and the departments are, are you know, having additional responsibilities sent to them by Congress, you know, all of a sudden you've got a lot of people running around and folks want to know who's in charge.
0: My colleague Tim Starks on CyberScoop writes, the latest executive order could silence persistent questions about overlapping turfs of Inglis's office, the Department of Homeland Security, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, Ian Newberger, among others. What's the importance of making sure that those turfs are laid out correctly? What's the message that sends, not just to federal agencies, but to the private sector organizations that are also affected by these, these offices and organizations?
1: Yeah, it's really a good insight on this because uh, one of the things I saw when I was at DHS was we uh, were in the midst of the OPM hack at the time and one of the questions when you're trying to coordinate across the interagency um, in you know departments that are multiple uh, on the you know been attacked by multiple um entities uh, is that you see um and agencies looking to who's in charge and who's going to be running the show on this. And at the time, OMB really took the lead. Uh, It wasn't until after that, that, uh, you know, Michael Daniels was established as the first cyber coordinator at the white house. And then the, you know, the national security council started to assert itself. So, you know, the white house itself has a lot of activity and things, as you know, going on and oftentimes they will flood the zone and it makes it difficult for agencies to kind of figure out, okay, are we responding to the deputy, uh, at OMB or should we be listening to Michael Daniel, you know, as his office stood up. Uh, and now today you've got a you know, National Security Council with Anne is very active. Uh, certainly with Chris Inglis, you've got, you know, statutorily established position. And with the uh, recently passed bipartisan infrastructure bill, he gets an appropriation of $21 million to start hiring people. And so it's not just the key people at the top of the pyramid, but also when you have, you know, a, a increasingly larger staff members present as they hire up. There's going to be a lot of people running around. And so the lines need to be really clear for, for all those involved.
0: Is it reasonable to think that this only applies to civilian cybersecurity or civilian agencies? Because I didn't see any reference in any of this. And I don't recall uh, this uh, testimony before the House Homeland Security Committee referring at all to the National Security Agency or Cyber Command. So is, should we assume that this is all going to be focused on civilian cyber issues?
1: Yeah, I think that the EO will really uh, delineate the, the, the relationships on the civilian side. Uh, as you know, U.S. Cyber Command and NSA are, through DOD are working to reestablish an MOU, as you've reported in the past, with DHS uh, to make those lines and channels clear. So I think that they will uh, have an ecosystem of support, uh, but it sounds like the EO is really centered on the civilian agencies. What do you think makes all of
0: this ecosystem work well?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, one of the things we'll, that we'll have to crystallize along these lines is that you know when we used to negotiate this in the past with our sister agencies, you know, it's pretty uh, clear that uh, as CISA, uh, you know, then uh, the National Programs and Protection Directorate at DHS was engaged in increasingly cyber activity with the private sector that, that the lines and the responsibilities would have to be much clearer. So at the time, you know, over the last four or five years. It was really, you know, National Security Agency. You've got the foreign actor piece of it. Um, FBI, you're doing investigations. DHS, you've got, you know, the federal civilian and the interface with the private sector. And the White House is going to coordinate. And so now, I think what you're seeing is, you know, you've got multiple players at the White House that are strong and assertive and have their own statutory authorities. And that's going to have to be deconflicted so that it's one unified voice at the White House. And then each of the players that have major responsibilities are coordinating in a fashion that when something goes wrong, everyone knows exactly what to do. And that's, as you know, in the federal government, sometimes a challenge.
0: Final thought, the executive order, as Chris Inglis said, set to arrive in weeks to months time, as I mentioned at the beginning of this conversation does that timeline matter to you or does it matter more what's in it? Is this something for which time is of the essence?
1: I think it is because when things go wrong, um, people are going to be looking for you know, straight answers, clarity um, and action. And sometimes if those things aren't spelled out in advance, uh, you, you tend to run into situations where it looks messy uh, and it probably is uh, you know, more uncoordinated than it needs to be. And with the threat Uh, vectors coming at the federal government right now, uh, particularly with the expansion of ransomware attacks. I think that time is of the essence and they really do need to move uh, with swiftness.
0: Chris Kameske, thanks very much for joining me. It's always great to talk to you. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about what's coming in the federal government's cyber structure in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The leader of the cybersecurity maturity model certification program, the Pentagon, has a potential supply chain problem, but his problem's different than everybody else's. The CEO of the CMMC accreditation body, Matthew Travis, will be here in a few minutes to explain on the Daily Scoop podcast. The Army does have enough email software licenses for every soldier who needs to use one. That's according to the Army's chief information officer, and that's contrary to a report that made the rounds last week. Army CIO Raj Iyer tells FedScoop's Jackson Barnett the Army made some assumptions about buying that didn't turn out to be true.
2: So two or three things they should be aware of. One is the fact that the way the Army has been buying licenses for all these years, assuming that, you know, there was a basic assumption that the Army had 1.4 million users. Mm -hmm. And and so everything that we bought had to be for 1.4 million users. Well, the fact of the matter is the Army actually does not have 1.4 million users for office, you know, an email type, you know, office productivity tools. Because if you look at, you know, people that are working in depots and arsenals, and these are people that are, you know, turning wrenches, you know, and on the manufacturing line and the assembly line, they never have, you know, they never have a use for email. They Nobody communicates to them over email. If you look at, you know, how so many of the contractors that are working, you know, at our installations, you know, either, you know, you know, electricians, plumbers, you know, all kinds of wage-grade employees, people working at, you know, at the at the shop at AFIS. I mean, there's all these people that, you know, in the past that the Army has automatically, you know, configured an account for them which they have never used so when we did the assessment earlier this year we found that there were over 150,000 accounts that people had never touched in over or, you know in over 6 months and and so so and then we found out that at any given time in the army there was 100,000 people that are either positions unfilled you know moving between jobs or on extended leave you know um you know debts I mean, you name it, right? Right. So, so all these people that are in flux, so the Army never at any time has to- the total population of 1.4 million people. So so that's point one. Mm-hmm. The second point was when we did the Army 365 impl- implementation this year, you know, you guys were tracking that there was some very serious um, uh, Microsoft Exchange hacks. Are, yeah. are you tracking that in the news? Yeah, of course. And and so we found out that, you know, just moving to the cloud, even though, you know, it's Office three sixty five in the cloud is not doesn't automatically equate to a greater cybersecurity, you know, position for the army. So we actually had to go procure a whole bunch of cybersecurity tools to put on top of Office three sixty five to make it much more secure, even in an IL five environment. Okay, Mm -hmm. even in an IL five environment. And so, uh, and then if you take into account, you know, how people, you know, with the remote workforce and how people were using their personal, you know, laptops and mobile devices to access information with CVR, we found out that there were tremendous cybersecurity risks, which meant that, you know, we had to be very careful about how we implemented email moving forward. We just couldn't take it for granted that, hey, email in the cloud is safe. mm mm-hmm. um, so that's the second point. The third point was while we were doing all this, we actually did a very in-depth assessment of how you know people's usage patterns,
0: mm-hmm. who
2: needed what kind of collaboration tool, right? Because it's not just email. And I can tell you, a lot of the 18 to 21 year olds that we talked to actually did not prefer email at all. They preferred chat over email anytime. Mm-hmm. And and so so the, the the way that we were communicating in the, in the army was actually changing. Depending upon the age group and the demographics that you belong to. So, so what that led us to the conclusion was that, hey, this approach of just, you know, a la carte, giving everybody a full fledged, you know, office license is not the best way to go because it is way too expensive. And, and so instead we had to get to really like how the army does business, you know, use, you know, use software, you know, as a basis of issue, right? So just like, you know, if you, you know, you come in into the Army, you know, you get a uniform, you get that, you get this, you know, we want software to be like that. Like depending upon the role that you're in, you are Mm -hmm. going to get um, a certain type of software depending upon what you require to get your job done. And so, so, so that is the path that we've been on. And so when we did that, what we found was, you know, Three or four big segments of the user population and and it was very clear that not all of them needed the full office three sixty five suite. There were people that only needed email and nothing more. There were people that needed only chat but not even email. There were people that needed you know chat and email, but nothing more and then there was people that needed chat, email, and the office productivity tool that includes you know the you know microsoft word powerpoint all that in the cloud mm-hmm. and and so so the path, so so that was the, that was the, the the and then on top of that what we found out was just giving people an email alone wasn't sufficient either because if they didn't have gfe to access it right then it was no good because again you know they couldn't access their emails mm-hmm. and and so you know, and clearly the army has never given GFE laptops to every single user in the Army. If you look at all the compo two and compo threes, they've never had, you know, GFE laptops given to them. Mm-hmm. And so, so the path that we're on now really is to get to BYOD. And and so 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 this year we're gonna start implementing Army wide a program to roll out, you know, bring your own device. And, and this will be, you know, you could know, you bring in your own PC, your Mac, you know, your iPhone, your Android, whatever you want to be able to access securely your content and your email in the cloud. And by the way, our email may not just be Microsoft. So we're also looking at other alternatives that might be non-Microsoft, you know, collaboration products. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's the path that we're on this year because we want to make sure we want to address this holistically. It's the access piece as well as what capabilities they're specifically needed to get their job done.
0: You can read more about the Army's email situation and Raj Iyer's conversation with Jackson Barnett in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Success in zero trust is a culture mindset as much as a technology mindset, according to the Chief Information Security Officer at Idaho National Laboratory. Robert Roser is on Wednesday's program, that Daily Scoop podcast podcast debuts Wednesday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program at the Defense Department may have a supply chain problem. It may have more supply for assessors and less demand than it was planning for. Matthew Travis is Chief Executive Officer of the CMMC Accreditation Board. Matthew, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You told my colleague Jackson Barnett when uh, DOD announced version 2.0 of CMMC that number of 40,000 assessments required would strike me as too low compared to the 300,000 that we expected early on. What are the factors that make you say that 40,000 is too small a number of assessments required in the defense industrial base? Welcome.
3: Francis, good to be with you. So yeah, when I th- that estimate struck me as too low, but I think it's important to frame the context first. When the 300,000 number that we had talked about was generally the, you know, the estimated size of the defense industrial base. And then the old 1.0 of CMMC had five different levels. And there are different estimates on how many would be in that level one, how many in what is now level two and, and, and level three. And so I think what Mr. McKeown was talking about in terms of the, the bifurcation aspect of level two, which is really a mechanism to help manage scalability, right? So the, I think one of the critiques of, of CMC 1.0 is that we had. All of these uh, dip companies needing assessments. The ecosystem is very immature. We only have a handful of C3PAOs. So how do we scale it? And so having a dial to kind of bifurcate level two in terms of this is lower priority controlled and classified information, this is higher. So let's get the higher CUI uh, assessed first. I think Mr. McKeown has just taken a you know first stab at, at how that might shake out in terms of level two. So given that the criteria hasn't been developed yet on how that prioritization is going to take and given some of our numbers that we worked through, I just thought 40,000 was a bit low. The ecosystem still needs to grow. And so if it were 40,000 tomorrow, you know, we only have five C3PAOs who have been cleared. <laughs> so. Um, there is going to be plenty of work uh, in the ecosystem. It was just my initial reaction to when Jackson uh, put that number in front of me.
0: So the supply chain issue that I alluded to, and I'm I'm playing on words, obviously, because supply chain issues are at the forefront of a lot of people's minds about a lot of different things. But I wonder what that implication is for the long-term business plan of the CMMC board, Matthew. What does that look like uh, at some future juncture uh, as far as sustainability goes from your perspective?
3: So I think there's a lot of opportunity in terms of the long-term view. If you read into what uh, duty has said and what they've done in terms of making the model less uh, customizable and, and making it uh, tied closer to NIST, uh, I think that makes it more adoptable by the rest of the civilian executive branch. It makes it more adoptable by other countries. And so I think over the long term, that's going to fuel growth of the ecosystem. We always... Believe that CMMC should be the unifying standard for cybersecurity in the federal acquisition space, uh, and so I think that's very, very promising. In the immediate term, clearly, uh, making level one self attestation takes away those assessments, uh, but also, and it's been said in one of your early podcasts, it doesn't leave those companies off the hook. So we think there's still an opportunity in seeking help from the ecosystem, whether it's one, some of our practitioners who are registered and are the really the coaches and. Advisors on the ecosystem, or actually going ahead and hiring a C three PO to go ahead and get certified to ensure that when you test. So we're working through our constituents with with that change, and so there's a. Obviously, an immediate adjustment we're making in terms of the levels, but long term, I think it's as promising as ever.
0: This came about ostensibly as a result of industry saying to the Defense Department, We think this is maybe too onerous or problematic for us to be able to execute this efficiently or economically. I know that's outside the purvey of the accreditation board, but what is your role as far as interacting with industry to understand what the board can do to streamline that process and make? make it more uh, economically feasible, and, and streamline it for industry companies.
3: So I think cost was certainly one of the drivers to make that decision. But I think the other one, too, Francis, to keep in mind is, and we commend DOD for really using a, a risk-informed lens when they made these uh, proposed changes to CMMMC. What, you know, they looked at the value of federal contract information, FCI, which is what level one was always about, and, and came to the determination that the cost associated with assessing those companies was not worth the risk to protect that information. And so I think that was a very uh, rational risk management decision to make. But we do play a role in helping industry understand the changes, uh, understand how it's going to affect them, how they can still uh, engage the ecosystem. We held our first town hall post CMMC 2.0 Last week, we're going to do some uh, focused webinars. We'll maybe have another uh, town hall again at the end of the month. And so I think our role is to facilitate understanding, to help take questions from industry to DOD. We interact with them pretty much every day. And so being that uh, moderator and helping facilitate greater understanding is certainly something we take seriously.
0: What was the tenor of that feedback at that town hall, Matthew? What What's really forefront on people's minds? And how adamant I, are they about it, too? I mean, I guess the emotion behind it is as important as the content.
3: So it was. It was mixed. Largely, uh, it's a lot of positive feedback that okay, we have a way forward. The this internal review uh, probably took a bit longer than I think was initially expected, and so there was a lot of uh, you know anxiety of wait, what's gonna what's gonna become of the program? Is CMMC dead? You probably saw some of those uh, headlines in the blogosphere, and so the 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 comfort that there's now a way forward that the department is committed to was big. At the same time. Uh, you have some companies that engage in the ecosystem that expected to be doing, uh, you know, uh, all level one certifications or what have you. And I think some people, you know, again, thinking that maybe we're letting some companies off the hook, and that the threat landscape demands that we we certify everybody and third party third party uh, certifications. Uh, but again, from a risk management perspective, I think most people understood that the Pentagon made these. You know, they did what they said they were going to do, and I think the 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 defense base recognized
0: that. You said something else in your conversation with Jackson last week. A CMMC certification ultimately is going to be the coin of the realm. When the concept first came out, there was buy-in in one respect immediately from GSA. The General Services Administration's included CMMC requirements in some of its contracts already. you expect that momentum to continue even if the department refines who has to do it and to what level they have to do it moving forward?
3: I do. And I really do think that as this matures, industry is going to look at CMMC as not something the government is telling them they have to do, but it's a certification that they're gonna want for their own business interest. It's a market differentiator. You're communicating to your clients, your partners, your competitors, your employees that you take cybersecurity seriously. And so that badge of being CMMC certified, I think is going to have market value. And so we expect during this interim period we've seen already an initial market demand to go ahead and get certified. We're really encouraging uh, dip companies to go ahead and do that, get on board. I think you're seeing from some of the big primes as well, encouragement to get their subcontractors, go ahead, get certified, because ultimately what we want to get to a place that if you don't have it, it's noticeable, And it would almost signal that you're not taking cybersecurity seriously. And and so I think over the long term, that's where CMMC will evolve
0: to. So that's the final thought that I have for you, is how do you move this culturally from something that companies think they have to do to something that companies want to do, Matthew?
3: Well, I think incentives would certainly be a great start. You heard the Pentagon talk about they're going to look at what incentives they can go ahead and build into the system now to encourage those voluntary certifications, I think as uh, the executives in the C-suite get a better understanding of the threat landscape as well as what's at risk in their own businesses, they'll do it out of their own self-interest, again, not because their contract tells them to do. So part of educating uh, the the sector and then really promoting the value of that third party look as a, almost as an insulator to your own risk. You heard you know, false claims and some of the other legal aspects that come into you know, we want the default position to be, it's better to get certified than just uh, self-attest.
0: Matthew Travis, CMMC uh, accreditation board. It's great to have you on the program. Thanks for your time today. Francis, thank you. You can read more about the future of demand for CMMC services in today's show notes at com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. The culture of zero trust on Wednesday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening.